welcome to the very first time we've ever done an actual church service in a building on Easter. Somebody wanted to clap and you resisted. Confession time. For a preacher, Easter is simultaneously terrifying and exciting. It's the most terrifying day of the year to try to offer words into empty space that make any meaning whatsoever of what we're now contemplating together. It feels like, have you ever tried to make a king-size bed with a twin-size sheet? No matter, it's like no matter how hard you stretch it, something's going to be bare. The words just don't get us all the way there on days like Easter. They just don't. What can I tell you except that we're going to do what we can to make that effort today. Today, we were made for this day, and this day was made for our hearts. And what I mean by that is, it's not necessarily a day that makes perfect sense to our minds. Our minds are going to struggle to get, their, get themselves around ideas like life after death and bodies getting up from the dead and people running around in circles. Our minds are going to struggle, but our hearts will know the way. The good news today is that Easter is about bodies and body snatchers. Kids, that'll make it a little interesting. Any, anybody interested in the word body snatchers? That's my favorite two words together in the English language right now. I just love all of the Netflixy things that just came up in your mind because I said the word body snatchers. We've done some epic stuff as a church over Easter. We have fed the homeless at 7th and Neches, then we moved it to Under the Bridge. We've done boot drives to the tune of about 1,000 pairs of boots. Used to be in our garage. I, you remember this, Natalie? We've done a lot of very interesting things. I remember the first Sunday Easter that we did. It's the first time I ever wore a clerical collar, in case you're keeping track of trivia. Um, it was on the lakefront when we were told we weren't allowed to be out in the city, so we sneaked down there. It was Caesar and Lamar and Trey and I in the rain, and it was, it was Mark, too. And we do this little service thinking we're going to get arrested. That was the first Easter that I recalled a little bit ago. Last year may be my favorite. When the king of Austin Americana, the king himself, David Ramirez, joined me on Butler Hill for a live performance. How we ever talked him into that, I have no idea. He was just launching a record of old hymns that he had re-recorded. The moment was right. So we've done some amazing things, but we've never actually done this. We've never done a service and it felt right this year. It feels right to see your faces again in this room, the, the lower 80% that I've not seen yet until, until this very day. It feels good. It's a beautiful day to gather around a beautiful table. For those who have set the table and done all that work, we thank you. It's a shocking event that we're about to consider together. And thousands of pages have been written about it. Poets have written, painters have painted, sculptors have done their best. It's a breathtaking mystery that we're looking at that happened thousands of years ago, yet somehow also happened again today, this very day, this very sunrise in this very city, the same truth broke through. You see, friends, here is there and there is here. That's what we know to be true. Now is then and then is now. Time and space collapse in the face of divine love. When divine love decides to intervene, which it always does, that's what makes it divine, distinctions collapse. What happens anywhere happened everywhere. Nothing that happened in the ancient world would matter at all if it were not for the way that we are everyone and they are us and everything is one now. I hope that you can see the logic of that. And it, it, as lofty and bizarre as that may sound to, to sort of talk about that on a day like today, that is our work on Easter. Otherwise, I ask you this question. What difference does it make that someone rose from the dead 2,000 years ago if we can't somehow bring it into the moment that we inhabit right now? So don't worry. It's far simpler than it sounds to do that giant leap. In fact, the kids in the room We'll get it, and if they don't, we've missed our target entirely. So this will make sense to the children. So let's read our story together. You guys can read along from the screens. Uh, the bold parts, you guys read, and I would just love to hear you read in a big voice, a big unison voice, and I'll read the parts in between. So whenever you're ready, let's get started. 
Go for it. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, Then Peter and the other disciple, you guys, I can't even with John, he just can't say his own name. He just talks about himself as the other disciple. Anyway, then Peter and the other disciple set out and went towards the tomb, and the two were running together. But the other disciple, of course being John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, thank you in case that wasn't clear, also went in. (laughs) For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, she said to them, when she had said this, she saw Jesus standing there. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. I love that. Say that again. Mary. Nice. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbi, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, Because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples. I have seen the And she told them that he had said these things to her. Every year the lectionary directs our attention to this passage in John. And while we celebrate the same events every year, you know, Advent, that leads to Christmas, and then Epiphany, and then Lent, and then Easter, and of course, Pentecost. Generally speaking, the lectionary relies on one of three different routes through the text. That would be years A, B, or C. But Easter is different, you see. Easter belongs to John. And I think it's because he gives us the most vivid detail. And details matter when you're looking for dead bodies, especially when you're looking for things that come back to life. Details matter. I've never been to Israel. Have you, has anyone ever in the room been to Israel? Yeah? Yeah? Anyone ever been there on Holy Week? No? Okay. Well, we got a whole room full of people who haven't. I've never been there, and I've never been there on Holy Week, but I've spent my entire life trying to make sense of what happened there all those years ago. Now, I've never been, but Don and Amy Smith have been something like 15 times, and it just so happens that this very day, seven or eight time zones away, Don and Amy and Tara and Don uh, and Mark and Kate and, and Kim and Jay are all there right now. Who else? Bob and Walter are also there right now. So let's hear from them. They were at the empty tomb in Jerusalem this morning as the sun broke. Let's hear. Austin, Austin New, Church, New Church, we have we seen, have this, seen week this week in the Holy, in the Holy Land, Land two, two commemorative, commemorative sites for the resurrection, for the resurrection of, Jesus. of Jesus. One at the one Church, at the Church of the Holy, Holy Sepulchre and the other, and the other at the, at the garden, garden Tomb. tomb. And, this and this morning, 
We have, we have uh, just, uh, just worshipped, worshipped Easter, Easter sunrise, sunrise service, service on Resurrection, on Resurrection Day, Day at the Garden Tomb. Um, what are y'all feeling? feeling? What's going on, going on in your hearts? Your heart. I am feeling, feeling overwhelmed, overwhelmed with gratitude, with gratitude for, the for the life of Jesus. I'm just amazed, I'm just amazed by, the by the people. The, the, the place the is place awesome, awesome, but the, the people, people coming, coming from, from all over the world to worship together is just, it's mind-boggling. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely um, shared in the joy of the crowd of all these people from all over the world. And then to be in such a serene garden, it was sort of the joy and the calm was a wonderful combination. Just a transformation from a time of bewilderment and sadness almost on Good Friday to just incredible joy this morning. So grateful and filled with the peace of the event. Uh, feeling very enlightened. We've learned a lot this week. Feeling absolutely thrilled and inspired again by the people, the setting, and the, the, the joy of the risen Christ. Let's feel connected with God's people here on earth. I am especially during the service felt just this overwhelming sense of peace and serenity and gratitude. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Oh, I miss those people. That was uh, some of our most beloved ANCers. It's, it's a powerful thought, though, if you think of it, isn't it? They were there in that space this very morning. To hear people that we know and love who are actually there at the place that all went down, it makes the world seem small to me. I don't know if that has the same effect on you. And it reminds me, in a sense, that we are all one and we are all there. We were there with them this morning. And that matters because this is just an event that we're talking about, the resurrection of Jesus. It's just an event that happened in the ancient world if we can't somehow trace the meaning to our own lives. Now, not everyone agrees on this, but certainly we believe that all that we just read actually occurred. Jesus was a real person. He had a hometown and he had friends and a job and a mom and a dog. He definitely had a dog. We all know how much better dogs are than people. Jesus had a dog, kids, I'm just telling you. And if your mom and dad won't let you, just tell them the preacher said Jesus had one. I'm not actually sure about the dog. I'm almost sure. Why wouldn't he have a dog, right? That's the question. Anyway, looking at the artifacts of the actual life of Jesus reminds us that he was one of us. He was us, in fact. But to say that it actually happened, which some people can't quite say, but to say that it actually happened is only half of the power of Easter, you see. So what? What difference does that make? Well, if what happened in a specific space, a specific city 2,000 years ago to specific people only mattered to that place then we should have all been on the trip with Don and Amy because apparently that's where you hoover up all the meaning, right? Amy and the ANC Prime crew, otherwise known as ANC Greeters, we should have been with them in Israel this week. I mean, if there is only there, and that's the only place that any of this has any power, we should be there. And if the story was only real for people that lived in the city of Jerusalem at the time all those years ago, then we should, I know, capture the city, build walls, charge admission, and throw out the, all the infidels that we think aren't, don't belong to be there. We would have called those crusades. And what am I describing tragically, sadly? That's actually the history of the city of Jerusalem. Three of the world's great religions all claim that as their epicenter. And ironically, Jerusalem, although being the cradle of the peace that Jesus taught, never actually has known peace, if you're curious. Not the peace, at least, that, that we would conceive of as the absence of war. 
And I think that's why Jesus wept, as Sam taught us last week, on the hillside, looking down in the city that he loved before entering all those years ago. You see, he wept for that place and every other place by extension. He wept for that time and every other time by extension. He wept for those people and all people in all places because we could not yet quite understand what peace looked like in the world of Jesus. And tragically, Jerusalem is the most disputed piece of land on the planet. What happened there altered the course of history, but only because there is the same as everywhere. You see, we're not there, but in the sense we are, everywhere is everywhere now. Technically speaking, who cares if Jesus gets up from the dead? What difference does that make to us? It doesn't take a ton of faith even to accept that. What's important is to understand how that impacts us here today. You see, Jesus was every man, every woman, every beloved person non-conforming. Jesus was them all. Jerusalem was every city. Anywhere is everywhere. Austin is the same. This place is every place if our heart can accept it. Therefore, we get to do more than just believe that Jesus rose from the dead, friends. As powerful as that is, as life-changing as that can be, it's still only half the truth. We also get to believe that we too will defeat death and live forever. You see, death is no more final for you than it was for Jesus. Now, I'm sweating. I don't know about you. Somebody turn that big fan on. Good Lord. Death is no more final. Hear me, truth. It's the, it's, hear me, church. It's the, it's the simplest truth of all. Death is no more final for you than it was for Jesus if your heart can accept it today. And as you well know, death comes in many forms. Kids, we know our own versions of this, don't we? Not making the team, losing the championship, or losing the friend or the loved one or the family member that was supposed to stay put so you could count on them. Death isn't because it never was the final word. That didn't change with Jesus. He showed us the way through. And here's the best part. Whatever journey or crash course or slow breaking you might need now, whatever falling apart or falling back together, whatever rearranging or reassembly is needed for you to get fully inside a truth so big, a truth so life-altering, it's okay. Take your time. Breathe deeply now. There is time enough. If there was sufficient room in the train of Jesus for Judas, then there will be room enough for us. There must be at least 100 billion, and that's a fun number because it's like a rough estimate of how many people ever lived. I have no idea how they know that. It sounds like a nice number. But there must be 100 billion ways to approach the death and the truth and the life of uh, the resurrection of Jesus. But John gives us three, Mary, Peter, and the nameless one, of course, referring to himself, the disciple formerly known as John or whatever you want to call that. So let's go back into the details of the story. We're going to have a little bit of fun with this, and let's see if we can trace these movements, and I want you to see if you can identify with someone in this story. And of course, it begins with Mary, Mary Magdalene, our first character. She wakes up early on a Sunday morning. I don't imagine she had been doing a lot of sleeping that week. You guys know that, that fear owns the nighttime. Kids, you guys know that when we're struggling with fear, it's usually at night that it's the worst. I don't think that she had been sleeping. So she's up early on a Sunday. You see, terrible things had happened to her friend, a teacher, that she loved just a few days ago. He was murdered after he was falsely accused, which of course meant that there was a body to be dealt with. And she was worried about how bad the stench might be by now. One doesn't easily forget the smell of a dead body. I don't know if that's true. You'll have to take my word on that. After all, her brother Lazarus had died not that long before, and it wasn't until he was dead for four days that Jesus came and rose him, raised him from the dead. Mary's response to the shocking events of Holy Week was to focus on a body. And how would she do that? She did that with spices. I wonder, who's got the spices in the room? Spices. Who's got the, where's the, there you go. Here we have garlic powder. Well, that's dumb because that's what a dead body smells like anyway. What do you got? You got spices? Chili powder. Now that we can work with. Cinnamon. Oh, yes. Love that. Mary. 
Where's Mary? Mary's here. Okay. So Mary brings spices. Anointing a dead body three days after death was simply an attempt to overpower the stink of the rotting flesh with a, a stronger smell. No great technology involved. She knew where they laid him. And on that Sunday morning, she craved more than any other thing to touch him or at least to smell whatever remained of the teacher that she loved. Anyway, Mary's sleep is disturbed by such worries. The rest of the disciples, well, they were sleeping in. It was Sunday, of course. But what does Mary find, kids, when she gets to the empty tomb? What did she find? I can, I can definitely outweigh y'all. What did she find, kids? You know. Angels, that's part of it. Yes, what else did she, what did she find? That's a secret. Shh, hold that for a second. <laughs> Somebody's jumping the gun over here. What did she find? What did Mary find when she first went to the tomb, guys? Nothing. Yeah. What was that? Jesus was gone. The stone was rolled away, wasn't it? Excellent. You guys are so ahead of us. She finds a tomb empty, messed with, possibly vandalized, so stunned and afraid she does what anyone would do. She ran and told Peter and the rest. And I love this part. This is the part that goes straight CSI Jerusalem edition. Even though she was the smartest of Jesus' friends, I think she doesn't connect the dot. You see, Mary isn't thinking about a resurrection. She's thinking about body snatchers, foul play. She sees a crime scene. Of course she does. I mean, stones don't just roll themselves away. She isn't yet believing any of this, at least not the part about Jesus rising from the dead. So she hurries to tell the fellas. And John and Peter do what boys sometimes do. We have no idea why they do this, but they race for no reason at all. Any moms of boys in the room? Oh, yeah. yeah. So Peter and John, they just start running. No clue why. This is what they do, at least according to John. Which brings us to the second response, and that's Peter. And I'm sure that this detail would have mattered to John, but since John is writing the thing and he has to point out the embarrassing thing that he outraced Peter, and we all have a good laugh at that every year, what I don't think is all that funny is, would have been the reason why Peter would have run to begin with. I don't know the specific reasons, but I know that Peter had a lot to account for, and so he probably ran to Jesus ready to make some apologies. I wonder who's got some running shoes in the room. We need to set another place at our table. I know there's two of them. Don't take your, don't take your dirty shoes off. I'm looking for new shoes. Where's the match to this? All right. Thank you. This is Peter's place at the table right here, represented by running shoes. You guys remember how Peter had behaved the week of Holy Week? He had a lot to account for. He protested Jesus' invitation to wash his feet at the Last Supper. That was just on Thursday. A few hours after that, he falls asleep in the middle of prayer when Jesus said, I just need one thing. I need some bros to pray with me. He falls asleep. That's nice. Then he cuts a dude's ear off. Good looking out, Peter. Way to read the context. Then who can forget the cowardly three-part denial of Jesus publicly when he was interrogated by a child at a campfire? Not his finest moment, which was, as you know, that very moment, comically punctuated by a rooster's early morning reminder to sleepy farmers to get up and feed the darn chickens. To make things worse, Peter wasn't even there when Jesus died on the cross. Oh, he had a reason to run to see what had happened all right. I imagine he was rehearsing the whole way, his apology all the way there. He had a lot to account for. He had a lot to set straight with Jesus. He had failed, you see, epically. He was supposed to be the leader, but he wasn't. And so he ran, rehearsing a speech the whole way. And no wonder John beat him. You can't run very fast when you're practicing a speech. Anyway, he and John get to the tomb to find it, just as Mary said. And John goes in first. I'm I'm sorry, John gets there first, but seems paralyzed outside the tomb. 
Third to arrive, first to stick his head in. Peter finds no one to apologize to, which stinks. That's a pun. Nobody got that. <laughs> Come on, guys. We're talking about a body. Maybe it wasn't good enough, and that's the reason. So maybe the joke is the problem, not the audience. I wonder. I wonder. <laughs> but he gets there ready to make some kind of an apology, and he finds no Jesus to, whom, to, to apologize to. Which brings us to John, the third and final responder to all of this craziness on this crazy day. John deals with his willies eventually and finally goes in right behind Peter, real brave there, to confirm what Mary already knew, that nothing remained but grave clothes where a body was supposed to be. Somebody in the room's got grave clothes. Who's got the grave clothes? Do you? Can you, can you give it to me? Am I going to have to do a little rock, paper, scissors here for it? Okay, so let's see. This is the head thing. Come here, let me, let me test it make sure it fits. Yep, looks perfect. See? All right, you got the other one. Excellent, thanks. You can take your seat. Some, some kids, you just got to be clear. You can sit down right now. No. <laughs> Grave clothes. This is a table set for John. There's a reason we connect that to John. Now remember, Peter and Mary were as yet unbelieving as the text makes plain, but John believed. He saw and believed according to verse 8. Of course he did. He wrote verse 8. Mary and Peter were still focused on death. They weren't looking for anyone alive. They were still looking for the body snatchers, those who had stolen Jesus. They were making uh, the people who had somehow interrupted their, their grief, they were making a, a terrible week even worse by stealing the body. But John says he saw and he believed. In the span of a single glance, John goes from beloved disciple to beloved detective, and not because he suddenly understood the, the scriptures, but because he noticed a detail inconsistent with the stolen body. You see, the head wrapping had been rolled up and sitting by itself. And a body, if you're taking a body, you're going to take the linens with it. And John noticed this. Now, we don't do this anymore, kids. I, you can talk to your parents about this later. But in ancient times, they would take a body and they would wrap it in expensive linen. And John knew that any body snatcher or any grave robber worth his salt would have taken the linens with them. So John believed that they should be looking for someone alive based on how the linens laid there on the stone. His imagination, you see, was starting to take flight. But even still, none of them, as yet, according to John's own admission in verse 9, none of them can fully connect the dots, not yet. And then we have one of the most astonishing verses in the New Testament to me. Having seen this thing happen, having ran there to sort of figure out what was going on in verse 10, it just simply says that the disciples returned to their homes. They didn't know what to do. Hang on, wait a minute, look at your text. Is that what they did? That's exactly what they did. They just went home. They didn't know what else to do, so Peter and John quit, and they go home. But not Mary. Oh, Mary stayed. Mary always stayed. Mary had a knack for knowing where to be when. She was still unsure of what to do, so she stuck around, and it's at this point that she finally goes inside the tomb, according to our story. But by now, it doesn't look anything like what it did when John and Peter had gone in, when they poked their heads in. This time, it's a very different scene now. Mary sees two angels sitting at either end of a stone table upon which a body was supposed to be laid. But Mary is in no mood to have conversation with angels. She wants a body. She was grieving, and her imagination could go no further than death as of yet. And that's when she feels the presence of a body creeping up behind her. I just wonder if Jesus sometimes was a practical joker. What a moment to sneak up behind somebody and go, <laughs> He sneaks up behind her. It's a body that she assumes could only belong to the gardener. Who else could it be? The fellows had already gone home. It must be the gardener. And so she pleads, please tell me where you took him. I want to take him home. But this is no gardener, friends. 
And this is no ending to a tragic story. This is Jesus, and this is a new beginning where Mary was convinced she was for sure that she was looking for an ending. Oh, no, there's a new beginning hiding here. It all came together when the gardener said her name, Mary. But in case you're concerned about Peter and John, they have a place at the table too. They hadn't yet heard their name spoken by the lips of Jesus for the final time. No, our story would go on to include them too. Once again, Mary appears to be our heroine. Who doesn't want to be Mary in this story? She's the first to believe. She's the first to see. She's the first to tell. First at nearly everything, perhaps, except racing the boys. Oh, but this story is good news, not just for Mary. It's good news for everyone. You see, Peter and John weren't left out. Even though they went home, even though they quit, undeterred, patient as ever, not even angry, Jesus sends Mary to loop them back in to catch them back up. You see, there is grace enough for quitters too. This was a, a confusing week after all. Jesus knew what his friends had endured. And this, dear ones, is the most astonishing thing about this story to me. This is not just a story for believers. This is a story for all John believed first. He simply saw and then he believed. Mary didn't, but she persisted. And even when she couldn't quite believe yet, she stayed put, stubbornly resolute. She wasn't looking for new. Mary would have been happy with the old dead body, that is, until new spoke her name. And then Peter, burdened with guilt, takes the easy way out. You see, he quit. I mean, why not? He'd spent the entire week making huge mistakes anyway. What would be one more insult to Jesus at this point? Oh, but the story is far from over, friends. Notice they each have a place at this table. That was never in question. Love seems capable of anything except excluding anyone at all. Oh, friend, what joy it brings me today to remind you that the same is true for you and the same is true for me. We've always had a place at this table before us, whether we believe at first glance like John or whether our stubborn persistence makes us stay until we get a body, until we get the old thing we want back, even if we quit and throw in the towel and go home and click on the TV, our place at this table is never in question. Friends, it's never in question. Oh, can you see it? Can you see the connection to those events then and what sits before us now? The good news is for everyone, no limitation, no exceptions. It doesn't matter how you respond initially. There is always time to catch up. Mary, Peter, and John all have their place, and so do you. You see, endings, however hard and hurtful, however dark and disappointing, however final they may feel, oh, all endings are new beginnings. Oh, I don't know if you need to hear that today, but I do. Not all of us are quick to connect the dots, and that's okay. Some of us need ample time to wonder and to wander. Some of us will need to quit and quibble till things connect, and it's okay, church. It's okay. The fact remains every ending is also a new beginning. So I offer you this final thought. Whoever you are today, there is grace enough for you. There is time enough for you to find your way home to this truth that life is by nature eternal. It always has been. Death has never been able to conquer life. Darkness could never overpower light, and your place at this table was never in question. And you might be saying to yourself, I don't know, preacher, you have no idea what mess I've made of things. I don't know if I can accept all this good news. What's the catch? How much is this going to cost me? Where's the small print? And I just tell you this morning, there is no catch. I see nothing before me but a long table with a place for you. That's what I see. This is the same table that Jesus set for his friends and a few of his enemies. This table holds the bread and the wine, but what it really holds, according to Jesus, is a body. A body once beaten and bruised, a body that death itself could not hold onto because love 
was stronger. So look, look now. Look at your life. Look at how you rise every time you fall. Go ahead, look again. Look deeper now. Look how something new always sprouts where something dies. Look, oh friend, look longingly at yourself. Look again at your place at this table and be reminded that you are what love desires, that you are the one that love is willing to remake again and again and again. You see, new always follows death, always. Look again, friend. Every ending gives way to a new beginning. That's always been true.